Okay, uh, as we're starting this section on ADHD, you might be wondering why ADHD? Isn't that a, a childhood thing? And, well, yes, but it's also now more increasingly being diagnosed in adults. And you may have grown up with the diagnosis. You may know some who have. You may be interacting with parents and teachers who think uh, that this is a, a, part, a category that we should apply to, to children and now even adults. Um, but also, as we're working through these modern-day diagnoses, again, this is just a practice in exercising discernment and thinking theologically about these issues, not merely just going to the Bible and saying, this verse says that, and refutes what you say, or refutes what you believe, but to see where these ideas have come from and the assumptions that these ideas are built upon so that we can recognize that ideas have consequences, and when you begin to build on a non-Christian foundation or a naturalistic foundation, you're going to have conclusions about practical things like we'll see with this diagnosis of ADHD that are markedly different than how a Christian, uh, coming from a Christian worldview, will judge things. So that's why I want to talk about ADHD. It's, it's, I think it's something that if you haven't already run into, you will run into. Um, if you have kids someday, this is going to be something that you'll have to think about. Um, and like I said, it's something that's now more increasingly being diagnosed in adults. Okay, So, let me open in prayer, and then we'll look at Proverbs 25, 28. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning after the rain. Um, you have answered our prayer for rain in this uh, uh, state, and we pray that you now give our leaders wisdom to be able to use the rain that has fallen and and not to waste it. Lord, I pray that you would grant us today uh, the that you would saturate, as you saturated the ground, you'd saturate our hearts with your truth, that it might, our hearts might bear fruit, that we might live wise and discerning lives, that we might live lives that glorify you and uh, uh, yield to your word. And I pray that we would believe your word more and more. I even repent in my own tendency of, of, of believing the experts over your word. And so I repent of that and want to be more and more confident of your word every day, seeing it proves true, just like Proverbs 30 says. And so we just ask for your blessing upon today's study. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at Proverbs 25, 28 to kick things off. We're going to be doing a lot of debt clearing again today. So we'll look at this verse and we'll be in scripture for a little bit, but then we're going to be doing a, a fair amount of discussion of the DSM and peer-reviewed articles and so on. So, but let's look here first at Proverbs 25, 28. Really simple statement, full of truth, full of empirically verifiable truth. You can just you can press this against your own experience, and you can see that it proves true. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. This is a city, or the picture is of a city that has been left utterly what? Defenseless, right? This city, it's, it's been broken into by thieves, by vandals, by an opposing army, and its walls have been devastated. So if that army has come in and, and routed that city and now moved out, the walls have been destroyed, leaving it vulnerable to another easy attack, right? And the, in the Proverbs here, Proverbs, this Solomon wrote this one, he's saying that a man without self-control is just like that city that has been overrun and then left without any kind of protection. It is vulnerable to being completely overrun by its enemies. A person without self-control is vulnerable to being overrun by all of his enemies. And the primary enemy of the soul, of course, is sin. And as you read in the Proverbs, the person without self-control is, is classified in various ways. He's the, he's the sluggard. He's the one who can't uh, uh, control his appetites. He's the one who can't control his mouth. He's the one who keeps talking or he vents his anger. He can't control his anger. And that person's life is going to be nothing but difficulty and trouble. 
He will be overrun by his, the enemies of his soul, namely sin. Why? Because he lacks self-control. And you might be wondering, why are you starting with this verse? Well, I think as, you, as we walk through the, especially here at the very beginning, as we walk through the DSM's definition of ADHD, you might start to see, at least I hope you do, you might start to see that the things that are described here, if you were to, to assess them uh, from a biblical point of view, you would see that a number of these things uh, relate to issues of self-control and a lack of it and the, res and the result of that lack of self-control. Okay? So Proverbs 25, 28, I think, is an important starting point. I'm going to lay that alongside of our discussion. We're going to re-enter the scripture in a little bit, but right now we need to do what I call some debt clearing and really talk about our cultural context with regard to this topic, ADHD. Attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. And for those of you who just walked in, you're thinking, hey, this has to do with children. Yes, primarily, but there are more and more adults. There are an increasing level of adults being diagnosed with ADHD today. So this is something that is growing beyond just childhood and now people are saying as adults I have ADHD or you probably have it <coughs> and so on. Okay, taking out of the latest edition of the DSM which is, I don't call it this, this is what psychiatrists and psychologists call it, this is the, the, this is the, psychiat uh, the psychologist Bible, this is what they go to to diagnose all various kinds of mental illnesses and so this re represents what we would hope is the cutting-edge research on these topics, cutting-edge definitions, cutting-edge um, criteria for making diagnosis. That's what the DSM is supposed to represent. Okay, so that's why we go to it first, because that is what psychologists and psychiatrists are supposed to be going to first, because it represents the cutting-edge research. Okay, so how would you define uh, ADHD? DSM says it is a persistent pattern of inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity and that's hyphened so just as an important even that those words are important what is hyperactivity well they relate it to impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development as characterized um, by one or two and then one or two are the two sections that we'll go through here so characterized by these things now remember um, this is something that is is what we would call clinically or they would call clinically significant so that the person suffering from true ADHD is being taken out of the game in significant ways, so to speak. They're having a lot of trouble at home, a lot of trouble at school, a lot of trouble at work, a lot of trouble uh, in their relationships because of, of, these, of these behaviors. Now, the DSM calls them symptoms. As we'll later see, I'm going to call them behaviors because symptoms gives the idea that they are the symptoms of an underlying biological cause. All right? I want to argue that they are behaviors, and that's the best way to, to recognize them. Okay, let's, let's talk about a few of them here. Number one, inattention. Six or more of the following symptoms have persisted for at least six months to the degree that it is inconsistent with developmental level that negatively impacts directly on social and academic, academic occupational activities. And you ask, where did the six months come from? It, 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 that just, they just decided six months is a good amount of time to figure that this is not a, a short-term issue. Six months, okay? Uh, that's not some sort of, that, that didn't come from some sort of objective formula, okay? <laughs> just so we're clear. Uh, the symptoms are not, now I'm just quoting from the DSM here, quote, the symptoms are not solely a manifestation of oppositional behavior, defiance, hostility, or failure to understand tasks or instructions. And that's an important <coughs> statement because that is true in a number of these. They're not necessarily, necessarily morally defiant problems. Some of them are. Um, but we'll talk even more about why, why it's important for the DSM and for psychologists and psychiatrists to, to make that designation. Uh, but at least five symptoms are required or I'm sorry, for older adolescents and adults age 17 and older, at least five symptoms are required. What are they? Number one, often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork, at work, or during other activities. Overlooks or misses details or their work is inaccurate. Okay? Thanks, son. Good work, son. I forgot my computer this morning, so I had to 
call and assign Colton to bring it for me. Um, B, often has difficulty sustaining attention and tasks or play activities. For example, has difficulty remaining focused during lectures, conversations, or lengthy reading. Uh, C, often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Mind seems elsewhere, even in the absence of obvious distraction. Another one, often does not follow through on instructions or fails to finish schoolwork, chores, or duties in the workplace. Starts tasks but quickly loses focus and is easily sidetracked. Another one, often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities, difficulty managing sequential tasks, difficulty keeping materials and belongings in order, messy, disorganized work, has poor time management, fails to meet deadlines. Often avoids, dislikes, or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. For example, in their schoolwork or homework, for older adolescents and adults, this would be in preparing reports, completing forms, reviewing lengthy papers. Okay. Uh, often loses things necessary for tasks and activities. Oh, this is convicting. Uh, school materials, pencils, books, tools, wallets, keys, paperwork, eyeglasses, mobile telephones. Uh, my worst is keys uh, and wallets. Now I have a place for them there. They always go. But typically, Amy, Amy was getting very good at just being, she'd walk around the house and she'd note, keys there, wallet there. If Derek asks, I know where they're at. Boom, and I'd ask her and she'd say, oh, it's over there on the counter. Um, is often... <laughs> Yeah, is often easily distracted by extraneous stimuli for older adolescents and adults may include unrelated thoughts to what they're supposed to be focusing on. Uh, is often forgetful in daily activities, doing chores, running errands for older adolescents and adults, returning calls, paying the bills, keeping appointments. Okay. So that is the inattention part of it. So what you would do if you're a psychologist is you would read through these things. You have someone come to you and they explain to you the difficulties they're having. You'd read through these and be like, does this fall under the inattention category of ADHD? Next is the hyperactivity and impulsivity section. Six or more of the following symptoms have persisted for at least six months and have detrimental effects on the person's life. Uh, first, often fidgets with or taps hands or feet or squirms in seat. Uh, often leaves, next one, often leaves seat in situations when remaining seated is expected. Leaves their place in the classroom, office or workplace, and other situations that require remaining in place. Often runs about or climbs in situations where it is inappropriate. In adolescents or adults, this would be uh, maybe limited to feeling restless. Often unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly. Is often, quote, on the go, acti on the go acting as if, if they were driven by a motor. Uh, they are uncomfortable or unable or uncomfortable being still for an extended time, as in restaurants, meetings, may be experienced by others as being restless or difficult to keep up with. Often talks excessively. Often blurts out an answer before a question has been completed. Uh, completes other people's sentences. Cannot wait for a turn in conversation. Often has difficulty waiting his or her turn for his or her turn or waiting in line. Often interrupts or intrudes on others, butts into conversations, games, activities, may start using other things without asking or receiving permission for doing so. For adolescent, adolescents and adults, may intrude into or take over what others are doing. Um, and then it goes on to give a, a few more diagnostic criteria. Um, several inattentive, inattentive or hyperactive impulsive symptoms are present in two or more settings, at home and school or work with friends or relatives and other activities. Um, there's clear evidence that these uh, symptoms interfere with, see there's the word symptoms, interfere with or reduce the quality of social, academic, or occupational functioning. So um, <clears throat> what you would do then as a psychiatrist or psychologist, you have someone come in and you would, you would basically walk through the DSM to see what they're, what they're explaining to you uh, is reflected here and then you would make the diagnosis. I believe you have ADHD and then you would set about a trajectory of trying to help them with overcome these, these problems. Now, as I read those things, what were your initial thoughts? As I read, just, we just went through the DSM. I had a little bit of color commentary, but for the most part, I'm just reading uh, the DSM. What are you guys' first thoughts? I didn't know I had ADHD. I didn't know I had ADHD, <laughs> exactly. Wait a second. Now I've got it. Yeah, exactly. So that was your first thought. I didn't know I had it. Any other thoughts? 
I, I guess I have it on some days and I don't have it on other days, but uh, any other thoughts? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it seems to describe young boys to a T. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think I definitely think there is a moral component to these. A number of these, as we'll see in a bit, uh, a number of these things, I, and that's why I started with Proverbs because a number of these things I think are are just talked about very, very explicitly even in Scripture, right? As as we'll see. Uh, the thing about a label like this and the label like anxiety disorder and, and, uh, and uh, oppositional defiant disorder and things like that, the, the thing about these labels as we are in our current setting is that once you hear the label, it is assumed that there is some sort of, that, and it's, it's called a disorder, but you hear it and you're like, oh, yes, it is a disorder. It requires a diagnosis, and by diagnosis we mean there's some sort of underlying thing or biologically in the person that is bringing about these issues, bringing about these problems. And so we are just so saturated with a, a kind of psychological framework in our society that the moment you hear this, you think that even calling it ADHD, you think, oh yes, this is a, this is a disease. This is a disease that someone might have. But remember, backing all the way up to our talk about anxiety, what is a true diagnosis? What is a diagnosis in the traditional sense of the word? When you go into a doctor and they diagnose you, what are they doing? Not, not psychology, but... Pardon? Finding a cause. Finding a cause to your symptoms. That's right. That's what a diagnosis is. Here in ADHD, anxiety disorder, and other things, they're not actually giving you a biological cause. They are saying, you came in with symptoms, I agree you have these symptoms, therefore you have the disorder. Okay? It's just an affirmation of symptoms. It's not a true diagnosis. And so we, we can't just jump into the, the, this category of ADHD without first asking this next question. So on your sheets, what's the next question? It should be, what are the underlying anthropological assumptions from which modern ADHD diagnosis is built? Right? We have to begin to think this way. Don't just, take, just, don't just embrace a label or an idea, hook, line, and sinker. You have to ask the question, what are the assumptions that underline this idea or undergird this idea? Well, in terms of the modern ADHD diagnosis, it is built, like uh, all psychological diagnosis, it's built on a naturalistic, materialistic framework. Meaning that the anthropology, when, when, you are, when, when you are developing this idea of ADHD, when this idea of ADHD has been developed, it's been built upon the assumption that we are evolved animals. And that biology is the primary component of who we are. The mind and the brain are collapsed into one. There's no longer a category for the spiritual or immaterial mind in the physical brain because biology is everything. The, the framework that people, that psychologists have been building on, and we saw this, remember how I walked us through it, just a real brief history of psychology? Psychology was uh, self-consciously humanistic in Judeo-Christian, uh, uh, self-consciously rejecting Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo framework, okay? Self-consciously. It wasn't just kind of happening. It was Freud and others saying very explicitly, we don't want to have anything to do with that Judeo-Christian framework. Actually, that's the thing that's causing the problems in people's lives. We need to shed that, and we need to move on with scientific progress, and we need to, and, and they just assumed that Darwin was right, they just assumed that evolution was true, and they worked from those assumptions. And B.F. Skinner, I quoted him, he was explicit in saying this. He says, I have to assess behavior according to one category, biology, because that's what we are. And so the, the, the scientific community is working from that anthropology. And remember, what did I say that uh, modern-day psychologists are now struggling with? You, you, 
it, you're working from this idea that man is primarily biology. They come in, they have these problems, and a psychologist wants to help them with their problems. What are they starting to really now complain about? We need some sort of immaterial soul, right? We can't have an anthropology that is just biological because ultimately it's just deterministic. You are what your biology is and there's nothing really you can do about it, okay? And so even psychologists, and they're not going to Christianity. They're saying, well, we can find some of that in Hinduism. We can find that in, in other kinds of um, spiritualism, but we need a category of the immaterial mind. We can't just have biology. But this is the construct, or this is uh, the, the framework upon which ADHD is built. Uh, one writer says, the, the symptoms, which are really behaviors, represent the reality in a child's life and are undeniably problematic. I have no problem with, th these are actually very accurate and helpful descriptions of, a, of, of how kids and some people tend to operate. And these symptoms or these behaviors are very problematic. They can cause all kinds of trouble. You can do very poorly in school, in your relationships, you can lose your job. So no problem there or no uh, disagreement there. But there, here he's going to call ADHD a construct, and we'll talk about that in a moment. He says, but the construct of ADHD is simply one attempt to describe, categorize, and approach a child's ongoing bad or impairing actions. That is such an important sentence. <coughs> it's one attempt. It's a naturalistic, materialistic attempt to describe what we observe in a child. That's all. That's, it's just one attempt. And so what I would say is, well, well why, can't I, why can't I describe that from a Christian worldview, right? Because you're, you're describing it from a particular worldview, aren't you? And so I think that's a helpful. ADHD is simply one attempt to describe categories and approach a child's ongoing bad and impairing actions. Here's a quote from Alan Francis. You know that I've quoted him before. He wrote the book Saving Normal. He was one of the uh, people who was in charge of overseeing the writing of the DSM-4, and he has a lot of problems. He's, he's not a Christian. He doesn't have a theological axe to grind. Um, he is one of the insiders, you could say, but he has a lot of problems with the way that we are diagnosing mental illnesses today, and he says this, he says, quote, this is from his book, Saving Normal, quote, Our classification of mental disorders is no more than a collection of fallible and limited constructs that seeks but never finds the truth, but this remains our best current way of communicating about treating and researching mental disorders. So he recognizes that these things are constructs, that they are ever-changing, but what else do we have, right? And if you're, if you... Are think if you're not think if you're thinking from a naturalistic materialistic framework and you don't believe that the scripture is true and God is real and the Bible is His word and, and so on and, and there is a very uh, clear uh, teaching doctrine of the, the the physical body and the spiritual mind immaterial mind then that makes sense he's recognizing within psychology itself that there is there is a, a real problem. These are fallible and limited constructs, but it's the best that we have, and so we need to continue to improve what we're saying and what we're doing. Uh, one interesting thing I found as I was uh, researching this, and this week, boy, I just, I, this, I just found this, all this research was so fascinating to me, and again, for me, what this was doing is it was allowing me to really peer uh, beyond the popular media into what is really going on in the world of psychiatry and psychology. And I found this uh, <coughs> peer-reviewed article on the history of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, because I want to know, okay, how did the idea develop? You know, where did it come from? And this is, in, this is interesting. Initially, in, from the person who they would call, uh, what do they call him? Oh, I had a, a phrase for him, but someone who, who it seems kind of was one of the first, if not the first person to kind of create this idea or category. Um, he, his name was Sir George Frederick Still, and he gave a lecture uh, to the, uh, a, three, a series of three lectures to the Royal College of Physicians in London, uh, and the names of the lectures was, was this, on, quote, on some abnormal uh, psychical, I think that's how you would say it, conditions in children. 
And he says, these conditions uh, which are concerned with the abnormal defect of moral control in children. That what he was assessing here is he's looking at what we just described in the DSM. Obviously, they didn't have the DSM back then, but he's seeing all these issues of inability to pay attention and fidgeting and, and not wanting to work hard and, and, and disorganization and these kinds of things. And he's calling that what? What's the, what was the, the significant word I just said in here? Moral. These were moral problems. Now, that is a significant thing because as this idea has developed, the morality of these problems has completely dropped out. So much so that now the attempt is being made, and it's been, been being made rigorously for the past several decades, to root ADHD in a biological cause. Okay? And we'll see why that's significant with, this, with, with the, the morality of these issues here in a little bit. I've got to save that. I have that under a specific line. But I just want to put that right there, that at the very early stages of the, the, the development of this idea, you have it understood by this, this gentleman here, who's kind of the first one really assessing it. He calls it the issue, a defect of moral control. What, what, what does that sound like? It sounds like... Proverbs 25:28, doesn't it? Okay. Another important question. Is there agreement among the psychiatric, psychological, and scientific community about the existence, nature, cause of, and effective treatment for ADHD? What do you think the answer is? No. It's, and it's not even close. Okay. But again, you walked in here today probably thinking that this is a closed and shut case. Right? I don't know. I don't know what you were thinking as you walked in here about ADHD. We didn't have that good conversation. But, but that's not the way it's portrayed in, in popular media or in popular psychological writings. Uh, the answer to that question is a resounding no. Um, some psychiatrists argue that ADHD does, uh, does not exist. I mean, there's a book written by... Uh, a psychiatrist that I saw on Amazon. Just, I, didn't, I didn't look into it all. Just the title says, ADHD does not exist. I mean, that was, it wasn't a Christian author writing. It just So uh, some psychiatrists argue that ADHD does not exist and that it is actually something else. And then he goes on to, oh, I guess I did look into that book. He, uh, he then goes on to talk about other potential things that you could call this uh, so he, he doesn't even like the, the, the construct ADHD. He wants to say it's something else. Uh, and he'll, but he's still working within that kind of naturalistic framework. Uh, some believe it's caused by a child's diet. Others believe it's caused by a parent's lack of attention and supervision. Uh, the differences of opinions among these professions about the nature of ADHD leads one uh, author to write this. This is, his name is, this is Daniel Berger. He is a Christian, writing from a Christian worldview. He says, quote, Observing these varied opinions further exposes ADHD to be a subjective psychiatric construct. It's a construct. It's not a true diagnosis. It's a construct. What is a construct? It is, it is a framework around which you try to understand certain symptoms or behaviors. To deny the secular construct of ADHD is in no way claiming that children do not have behavioral problems that need to be addressed. They absolutely do, right? And I, I would say that. It simply means that the American Psychiatric Association's perspective used to define and categorize children's maladaptive and bad behavior has been rejected. There are a number of psychiatrists and psychologists who, who do not believe that ADHD is rooted in some sort of biological difference in the person, and they, they want to they categorize it differently, they want to treat it differently, they want to uh, understand it or frame it differently. As people's fundamental, now quoting again, as people's fundamental perspectives and beliefs change, so do their dis descriptive labels and categorizations of people. Uh, Dr. Francis remarks on, his on this tendency and why a number of children being diagnosed as having ADHD continues to grow. Um, uh, quote, this is Dr. Francis again, Alan Francis. Uh, there is no reason to think that kids have changed. It is just that the labels have. We now diagnose as mental disorders, attentional and behavioral problems that, here it is, that used to be part of life and normal individual variation. Other words, 
we're saying kids being kids now have a mental illness. Now, has the objective, or has the objective observations changed? No. What's changed? It's the worldview. Worldview. Remember, the observations are oftentimes agreed upon by people across the spectrum of worldviews. A Christian uh, biblical counselor and can look at a child along with a, uh, a secular psychologist or psychiatrist, and they can see the same behavior and say, he's, he's doing this, he's doing this, he's doing this. We're like, shake hands. I agree with you. Now, because of God's common grace. But the moment you start to say, this is why they're doing it, and this is how we treat it, now what have you stepped into? Your worldview. You're assessing that child according to now your worldview and your assumptions about man, God, and so on. Um, I looked up a dissertation from Berkeley, just to give props to you Berkeley folks out there. No, it was, cause the, it was a good one that I found. Um, and supposed to be, you know, dissertations are supposed to be the cutting edge of, of research, right? Now, this one's written in 2010, so someone might get after me and say, well, a lot has changed since 2010, and I'd say, well, not really. But anyways, um, he says this, he says, quote, critics of ADHD, both within professional medicine and beyond, have pointed to the disorder's fuzzy and hopelessly murky, murky diagnostic criteria, arguing that the DSM's checklist includes symptoms that nearly everyone experiences from time to time. And there, there, there are a number of critics within psychiatry and psychology who have a real problem with the diagnosis of ADHD and how it's treated. Okay? So again, the reason I do this is because the way this is portrayed in popular writing in the popular media is that this is this the, the psychiatric and the psychological community are all in unison about these things. That is not the case at all. And I just want you to know that. All right. All right. Um, we talked about interpretation. Um, we talked about, oh yeah, we just talked about obser observation. There's no disagreement about the behavior being exhibited. The differences arise because of interpretation or once you start interpreting. This is what I, I believe. ADHD is a construct built upon naturalistic and materialistic assumptions used to classify a certain group of behaviors in an attempt to understand a person's problems and help that person overcome those problems. Now, in as much as secular psychologists and psychiatrists want to help people, hey, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against that. I'm for that um, desire, right? I'm, I'm for that. That's what they're trying to do. But what is the framework? What are the assumptions that they're working from? Now, this is important. Listen, listen to this next part, because now we're going to talk about is it a, what's the next? Is ADHD a physical disease? Okay, Is it a physical disease? <coughs> Over the last several decades, psychiatrists, doctors, and neurologists have sought to ground ADHD in a biological cause through the use of brain imaging and other neurological tests. The attempt has been to give empirical evidence for a biological cause of ADHD, brain size, dopamine levels, chemical imbalances, in order to classify it as a physical neuro neurological disease. And um, that's going to be really important when we come to the moral implications. So just this is an important, really important section. The conclusions of these major neurological studies that psychiatrists and psychologists and the popular media use to support the idea that ADHD has a bio biological cause, however, do not receive unanimous consensus among the scientific community. All right? So the big question, here's the big question. Can you root ADHD in a biological cause? therefore classifying it as a true physical disease that therefore can be treated with true physical uh, remedies. Okay? That's the question. Is everything I described in the DSM, can that be rooted when it, when it becomes uh, over six months and multiple symptoms and really affecting a person's life? Can we say that that now is rooted in a biological cause? Well, uh, the attempt has been made to do that for the last several decades. Uh, one of the big studies in 1999 that, for whatever reason, people still uh, refer to, but I think those 
are, those who refer to it just must not be familiar with all that's happened since then. I don't know, but, um, but let me just tell you about this one major study that was published in 1999 that as soon as it was published, the newspapers just grabbed a hold of and said in the headlines, biological cause found for ADHD, okay? Um, this study, oh, I'm sorry, this study was published in 1990 and it, quote, concluded that the brain level of the dopamine transporter is 70% higher in patients suffering from ADHD. So the claim was, is that there is something significantly different in the brain of the person who's struggling with ADHD, okay? That would seem to prove that ADHD has a biological cause, namely with the dopamine transporter, um, and this biological cause could be treated with psychostimulant medication, right? That, that makes sense, right? Unfortunately, in this study, the authors were not as forthcoming as they should be about some important factors in the study. And, and now I'm getting this information from the Harvard Review of Psychiatry. So this ain't me, and this ain't some biblical counseling journal, okay? <laughs> this is the Harvard Review of Psychiatry critiquing this 1999 study. Quote, in their 1999 article, the authors failed to specify that four of their six patients had a previous history with psychostimulant therapy. Subsequent studies have shown that the brain level of the dopamine transporter is similar in controls in an untreated ADHD patients, and that prolonged psychostimulant treatment increases this level. <laughs> so, in other words, the study concluded that the brain level of the dopamine transporter is 70% higher in patients suffering from ADHD because that same percentage of parents were previously on psychostimulant medication, which increases the dopamine, uh, increases the brain level of the dopamine transporter. That's not a scientifically rigorous study at all, and yet it came out and the, the, the media grabbed that and flung it across the headlines and said, we found it, we found the biological cause of ADHD. This, so this article in the Harvard Review of Psychiatry is an amazing article, which I, you guys can access it. It is uh, available to the public. It's called, quote, Messaging in Biological Psychiatry, Misrepresentations, Their Causes, and Potential Consequences. It goes through all these various, um, w all the various ways that popular media and even unwary psychologists have taken these uh, studies and have used them to attempt to prove certain things, and they don't prove them at all, and yet they get carried along uh, in the popular uh, thinking and then when they are refuted, guess what? You see no headlines about their refutation. No headlines whatsoever. You didn't see, after this 1999 study was refuted, you didn't see massive headlines saying, a study that proved that ADHD is as a biological cause soundly refuted, right? And carried out through the New York Times and the LA Times and everywhere else. That's not what happened. That's not what happens. And that's the point of this article is that you have, a, you have a messaging that goes out to the, 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 the masses that misrepresents these studies, then when these studies are refuted on scientific grounds, you don't have the same effort to go and fix that. And so what happens is you have people walking around going, yeah, that 1999 study proves that ADHD has a biological cause. I know that it does, right? Okay, uh, 19, in 1971, Paul Wender popularized the theory of chemical imbalances as the cause of ADHD. Medication, therefore, would, would balance it back out. You have an imbalance in your, your uh, brain chemistry, and you just, you just need medication to balance it back out, and you'll, you'll be back where you need to be. Uh, however, this idea of the brain chemistry theory has since been disregarded by psychiatrists as a valid etiology, which is just a fancy word for cause. Uh, quoting um, uh, that gentleman I mentioned earlier, uh, Berger, Daniel Berger, he says, quote, though psychiatry once asserted that chemical imbalance theory was uh, as a valid etiology, or was a valid etiology, or etiology, the lack of empirical evidence, the complexity of the brain, the absence of a measurable standard of normal chemical levels, and the failed attempts to balance the brain have left most prominent psychiatrists disowning such a fraudulent idea. Did you know that? 
I didn't know that. And so who, that was, he's a Christian. That, that guy was a Christian. So you might be thinking, okay, maybe he's biased. Here's Ronald Pies, who is a uh, former professor of psychiatry and bioethics, who is, who's not a Christian, as we'll see in a moment. He says, quote, in an, uh, a popular article that he wrote, he says, I'm not one who easily loses his temper, but I confess to experiencing markedly increased limbic activity, that's clever, whenever I hear someone proclaim, psychiatrists think all mental disorders are due to a chemical imbalance. In the past 30 years, I don't believe I have ever heard a knowledgeable, well-trained psychiatrist make such a preposterous claim, even perhaps, except perhaps to mock it. Are you hearing this? I mean, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> On the other hand, the chemical imbalance trope has been tossed about to great, uh, by a great deal uh, by opponents of psychiatry who uh, attribute the phrase to psychiatrists themselves. And yes, the chemical imbalance image has been vigorously promoted by some pharmaceutical companies, even to the detriment of our patients' understanding. In truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always a kind of urban legend, never, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Uh, did you just hear that? The chemical imbalance theory was never seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists or psy uh, psychiatrists. And I told you recently about the, uh, the huge definitive study that came out to show that the chemical imbalance theory for depression totally refuted. That just came out this summer, right? Now this was interesting. The remaining portion of the article. Uh, that that quote is from actually demonstrate that Pies is still confused about the immaterial mind and the, the physical brain uh, realities here, okay? Because he goes on to talk about, he, he wants to talk about the brain-mind construct, okay? He, he, he wants to stop talking, he wants to stop separating brain and mind, okay? He says, we need to do what Baruch Spinoza, who is a philosopher in the 1600s, we need to do what he did and say that the brain and mind are not two separate entities. Okay? And I thought, I read that, I read Baruch Spinoza and this guy saying, we need to do what he did and say that the brain and mind are not two separate entities. We need to talk about them as being one. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. What was Baruch Spinoza's belief about God? I want to know, because I think that's where these things come from, right? I think what you believe about God affects the way you are going to understand the human person and make these kinds of decisions, okay? So then I pulled out my trusty uh, um, History of Western Thought and Philosophy by Jane, John Frame, which I encourage you all to get. It's a tremendous resource. And I just looked up Baruch Spinoza. Do you know what Baruch Spinoza was? He was a pantheist. All is God and God is all, right? So in his own thinking about God, there was no category for immaterial spirit or immaterial mind in physical brain because it's all together. It's all one. And from that theology flowed an, an anthropology about what constitutes us as human beings. And so here you have in the 21st century, you have a psychiatrist taking that philosophy not realizing how it's built, well, he probably didn't care, how it's built upon a particular theology, and now saying this is how we have to think about the human person, right? Ideas have consequences. How you think about God will affect the way you think about the human person and will affect the way you think about psychiatry and psychology. I just found that incredibly um, interesting and revealing, honestly. We have to refute Baruch Spinoza's idea because we know, we know emphatically because of God's word that we are two substances, so to speak. The, the body is physical and the soul or the mind is immaterial. It's spiritual. They don't get collapsed. One is distinct from the other. You cannot ultimately, you can't uh, or I should say, you can separate them, but they're, they're, that's not the ideal. You want them always to be together. When you go and when you die and your soul goes to heaven, that's not the end of the story. And you don't want it to be the end of the story. Paul didn't want it to be the end of the story. He wants to be united back to his body, right? But nevertheless, we know that we are that the spiritual mind is distinct from the physical brain. And I just got to thinking, I, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a neurologist, so this is not my area of expertise. But I do have a little. Uh, uh, dabbling in, in philosophy. And so I got to thinking, all right, 
see what you think, guys think about this, all of you who are more skilled in these areas than I am, uh, in terms of medicine and neurology and, and so on. Just, I want, correct me if I'm wrong here, I got to thinking, all right, there's this idea of neuroplasticity, right? The idea that you can change the way uh, your, the, the neuropathways in your mind, you can actually change, you can actually change them, right? You can actually uh, um, carve new paths in your, your brain and kind of, and, which is, leads to different kinds of behaviors and so on. And this is something that's promoted by psychologists, psychiatrists, that's neuroplasticity. And I thought to myself, hmm, it, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong or, or my thinking is wrong here, but it seems to me that you can't have the reality of neuroplasticity without an immaterial mind because who is changing the shape of the mind? Who is carving out these new lines in the, in the neuropathways? Who is doing that? It can't be the physical brain because that's what's getting changed, right? And that's what had the pre... If, if it's all biology and that's what the... the if the, the previous neural pathways which are giving rise to your problems, if they are already like that, where does the neuroplasticity come from? How, how, come from? Where did, what is changing it? I don't know. Maybe you can refute that. I don't know. I just found that to be a, a, an interesting thought this week. See what you guys think about it. All right, uh, more recently, 2017, because you might be thinking, yeah, what's, what's most recent? 2017, a study was published by Lancet Psychiatry, a UK-based medical journal titled, oh boy, titled this, Subcordial Brain Volume Differences in Participants with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder in Children and Adults, a Cross-Sectional Mega-Analysis. Exactly, that's what I said. Um, well, this... I didn't, I wasn't able to access this one. I, I, I was able to access a lot of stuff. I didn't access this one because the actual article cost $30. I could have, I could have, I could have got it. All right, I just, um, but I didn't. Um, but helpful, a helpful article nevertheless in that um, website I've already recommended to you, Mad in America. A couple of, uh, one, I believe he's a, a PhD and another who's a, a journalist wrote this article together analyzing this study from Lancet. And the, the title of their article analyzing this Lancet uh, study was Lancet Psychiatry Needs to Retract Their ADHD Enigma Study. Why? Because it says this, quote, according, this is now the, the Madden America article, quote, according to the paper's 82 authors, the study provides definitive evidence that individuals with ADHD have altered smaller brains. But as the following detail, detailed review reveals, the study does not come close to supporting such claims. And I've been working my way through <clears throat> their article, the Madden America article, to try to really understand the, the, deficient, the scientific and methodological def deficiencies in this, this Lancet study. But so far, it's pretty bad. Um, in fact, at one point where the, 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 there's like 82 authors to this, to this article, and um, these authors tucked an important piece of information back in an appendix, an appendix that you can't get with the $30. You pay the $30, you get the article, you don't get the appendix, you have to contact Lancet specifically and say, can I have the appendix, and they'll send it to you, <coughs> according to this article. In the, so they're showing the information from the appendix. According to that appendix, one of the things they didn't show in the study explicitly was actually the ADHD, the ADHD people actually have higher IQs than the control people. That's pretty significant, right? Because what we're saying is that this is a deficiency. When actually, and actually, ADHD could potentially be a, a demonstration that it's not a deficiency. You actually, these behaviors actually represent that you have a, a, a strong uh, mind and a higher IQ. But why would, you, why would you hide that in an appendix that it's hard to access? Uh, and then in, in other parts of the study were demonstrating that this, the, the so-called differences were very minimal and in some cases not there at all. And in some cases, the... Uh, the the certain sections of the brain that were supposed to be smaller in the ADHD uh, uh, patients than the control patients was actually larger. And so these, it's just kind of a mess. And so um, according to that article, that 2017 study does not provide at all any kind of substantive, solid, empirical evidence that ADHD is an actual physical uh, disease so that you can identify the physical disease with accuracy and then say, and that's where your symptoms are coming from. So let's now go to this question. What is the moral implication of rooting these behaviors in the brain? 
You tell me, what's the moral implication of rooting the behaviors that we listed at the beginning of this message today? What are the moral implications of rooting it in a biolo biological disease? Amy? It removes moral culpability. And if you think I'm, you think that's unfair, you might be thinking, Derek, that's, mm, that's unfair. Let me read to you what a popular level uh, writer says on ADHD. She says, I was listening to this book as I was driving, and as soon as she said this, I hit the bookmark uh, button. Quote, if you're an adult with ADHD, I'm here to tell you that you're neither rude nor lack self-discipline. You do not have a bad attitude. You are not just lazy. The neurons in your brain are, not, are just not firing as well as they should. This is not your fault. Right? If it's just biology, you can remove the moral component. You don't have to hold them accountable in the ways that they should be. And you definitely shouldn't apply any kind of moral pressure for them to change. It's not their fault. Um, all right, well, how do we assess these things biblically? Uh, the, the symptoms listed in the DSM-5 that are used to classify and diagnose a person with ADHD are described thoroughly in Scripture, particularly in the book of Proverbs. The person who exhibits these symptoms is most classified in Scripture as either immature or needing to mature or a fool. The path to overcoming these symptoms, then, is to apply spirit-enabled, biblically-rooted discipline to one's children or to one's own mind, heart, and life. And the reason I say children or the adult is because now ADHD is becoming increasingly uh, diagnosed in adults. Uh, for parents of young children, this will require first that they understand their child's nature. Parents need to understand that their children come into the world naturally defiant, naturally resistant to authority, and naturally disinclined to, do, to not want to do, or I should say naturally disinclined to do what they're supposed to do or what they don't want to do, right? That's how children come into the world. They, they, want, to do, they want what they want, and they don't want to do what they don't want to do. And they are naturally uh, oppositional to authority, and as your child grows, you'll find that they're naturally allergic to doing hard things. So what does a parent do? Once you know that, what do you, what do, you do? It requires for parents, second, to uh, uh, apply constant, diligent discipline and training in order to shape a child into a person who does not succumb to their natural tendencies. That's what parenting is all about is you have a child who comes in the world who's naturally defiant to authority, uh, naturally wants what they want, naturally disinclined to do the things uh, uh, that they are required to do, naturally disinclined to do things that they don't find any interest in. That's just their natural tendencies. And if you just let them go, you know what that's going to result in, uh, a feeding and a growing of those natural tendencies. The job of the Christian parent is to shape them in the direction of wisdom, right? knowing their natural tendencies, and why, which is why parenting is so darn hard. It's because this is an hourly thing, and you are training, and you are training, and you are reminding, and you are steering, and you are correcting, and you are disciplining, and you're doing it constantly because their natural bent is to go the other direction. And so you're continuing to push and push and push the other direction until hopefully someday they're born again, and the, you don't have to push as, as much, although you, know, you just still have to guide. Um, it, the goal is to uh, shape your child uh, into a person who does not succumb to their natural tendencies, Proverbs 25, 28, uh, but who grows into a mature, submissive, hardworking, persevering, faithful, focused individual. All right, we're going to 
should, should I say a few more things, or would you like to do questions for the next five minutes? Questions? Do you, want, you guys want to do questions? Is this the only sure. No, no, no. We'll, we'll, we'll finish up next week by now going uh, verse by verse in the DSM and going verse by verse and, and, and showing where these things are answered biblically. Okay? So we're doing that next week. So we're definitely finishing next week. So you'll have chances for questions next week. All right, I'm going to do this. Okay, and then we'll, five minutes. Okay, here we go. Okay, let's now assess this biblically. First, vital and this is vitally important. It is not sinful or wrong or abnormal or undesirable for children or adults to have high energy. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, high levels of energy enable people to accomplish much in their lives that can be channeled in good, productive ways. High energy is a blessing, is a gift from God. High energy in health, that's a massive gift from God to, God to do huge things. People typically who are, who are running corporations and inventing things and, and all this, you should read about Edison, man. That guy was nuts, man. He didn't sleep. He didn't eat. He just invented. That's all he did. And um, super high levels of energy, which are found in children, are normal and actually something that you wish you had more of, honestly. But, so we need, to, to, we need to recognize that. Many of the symptoms, behaviors, I should say, described in the DSM have an underlying impetus in just high energy. Uh, children should not be considered abnormal, nor should they be medicated merely because they exhibit lots of energy. What they need to learn is how to channel that energy into a way that glorifies God and blesses others. Right? That should be the goal of parenting. That should be the goal of education. I'm always, now I'm asking, Colton, now I'm asking Ellie this. Colton, why are you going to school? Ellie, why are you going to school? to gain skills, to be useful to others. That's why. That's why you're going to school. That's why you work hard at school. You got all this energy, we're going to channel it, Lord willing, into a productive uh, way. Secondly, we need to see that many of the behaviors that are described out of the DSM are actually windows, are usually windows in a per, into a person's heart, aren't they? For example, if one, quotes often fails to give close attention or de uh, to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork, at work, or during other activities, um, or has difficulty remaining focused during lectures, conversations, or lengthy reading, these behaviors can just as easily demonstrate that a person has little heart interest or inclination in these particular activities. That's all it means. They just don't want to do it. You do what you want to do, and you do it with zest, typically, right? Don't, just think about your life. He, this is the one place, so this is kind of the one way that you disprove, in large measure, the ADHD construct. How, how do you disprove the ADHD construct? You have a child who cannot, for the life of him, give 15 minutes to his schoolwork. Well, he's got ADHD. What, what are we going to do? We're going we're to, well, medication's an option. Uh, Psychoanalysis is an option. What, what are we going to do with him? Does he have ADHD? Well, let me, you forgot a piece of information. He can spend three plus hours on video games without any trouble. He has no problem remaining riveted in his chair, focused for hours on video games. What's the problem? Well, he loves his video games. He doesn't love the schoolwork. And that might sound like a simple... Silly illustration. I think it has major purchase in undermining this whole construct. People work hard at what they love to work hard at. And we need to learn life is learning. Maturity comes through doing things that are hard and doing things that don't initially feel, uh, seem appealing to us. If we only did what initially felt and seemed appealing to us, <laughs> we wouldn't be servants at all, would we? So uh, a person who can't focus on their works project for more than 10 minutes at a time can watch Netflix for half a day. Why is that? Or work on some other side project that they like at home. Why is that? Because they like it. This isn't, this isn't complex. It doesn't mean they have a neurological uh, disorder or disease. This is heart issue. 
Children and adults need to learn how to work and perform tasks for which they may not be immediately inclined. By our nature, we are prone to laziness, insubordination, self-centeredness, and passivity. These qualities must be overcome by the application of biblical truth to the mind, heart, and life. And so then next week, we'll go verse by verse in the DSM, verse by verse in the Bible, and talk about how these behaviors must be addressed in, within a biblical category and how they are addressed in, in, within biblical categories. Okay, And we will have plenty of time for questions next week uh, as well. Okay, So, let me pray for you, and if you do have questions, you can come up and talk to me anytime too. So let me pray for you, and you can, you can go. <coughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our study today. I pray that you'd give us wisdom, uh, give us clarity, also give us uh, compassion and gentleness as we talk to people with whom we might disagree, they might disagree with us, even as we are working through these issues ourselves. Uh, I pray that you just give us grace to think clearly, to dig um, deeply, and to give us a knowledge of the truth. Uh, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys, have a great rest of your Sunday. And again, if you have questions, come, feel free to come and talk to me.